Before World War II, Native people in Alaska were subject to racial segregation and Jim Crow policies. Throughout many cities and towns in the territory, public places were marked by signs reading, No Dogs, No Natives. Indigenous people were treated as second-class citizens by the government and struggled to find work and housing. But the natives were not resigned to their fate. Instead, they rallied to overcome it. United under the leadership of a woman named Elizabeth Paratrovich, the natives petitioned the Alaskan government to pass the first anti-discrimination law in American history. They were not without opposition, however, as several influential members of the Territorial Senate stood in their way. I'm Zach Knight. Welcome to Shaking America, a history podcast. Sources for this episode include the book Fighter in Velvet Gloves, Alaska Civil Rights Hero Elizabeth Paratrovich by Annie Buchever, the book Elizabeth Paratrovich Native Civil Rights Leader by Pauline Duncan, the article Jim Crow in Alaska from the American Nations Journal, and the Alaska Territorial Guard from the Smithsonian Online Archives. Elizabeth Paratrovich was born in 1911 in a small town in Alaska, the daughter of a Tlingit native woman and an Irish immigrant. Notably, not an easy time in America to be Native American or Irish. To further complicate things, her parents found themselves unable to take care of her and left her outside of a Salvation Army as an infant, making her an orphan before her first birthday. Fortunately, she was quickly adopted by a Tlingit couple in Sitka, a coastal city in southeast Alaska. They gave her their last name, Wanamaker, and raised her in the traditions and customs of the Tlingit people. Both of Elizabeth's new parents were members of the Alaska Native Brotherhood and Sisterhood respectively, the two oldest indigenous rights organizations in the world. As such, Elizabeth's home was one that was very much in touch with traditional Tlingit culture. She learned the various ceremonies and dances and became a proficient public speaker. In Tlingit society, public speaking is considered an important skill with a rich cultural history. For thousands of years, the Tlingit people, alongside the other Alaskan native groups, had no written language. Instead, they told stories, sung songs, wove elaborate baskets and quilts, and carved intricate designs into totem poles to commemorate their past. As a result, they prized public speaking as an art form. From a young age, Elizabeth was trained to speak in front of large groups in both Tlingit and in English, as a way to honor her ancestry. It was not until she was old enough to go to school that Elizabeth began running into the structural racial injustices of her time and the bigotry that inspired it. The chief education administrator of Alaska during this period, a man named Reverend Sheldon Jackson, stated that his mission was to civilize and assimilate the native children of Alaska. He forced the native students to adopt Christianity and promoted corporal punishment if any of the school children were caught practicing any traditional customs. Elizabeth's school was no different. The Tlingit language she spoke at home with her parents was not allowed in class, 
and any native child heard speaking any language besides English was forced to kneel on rocks and struck across the hands with a ruler. Elizabeth would often come home from school with her knuckles bruised and bloodied from speaking her family's language. Schools were not the only place that treated natives differently in the territory. Any public area, including hospitals, restaurants, movie theaters, or even cemeteries, had a different, dingier space for natives, if they allowed natives at all. Jobs for native people were scarce, and social services and health care were nearly non-existent. However, while the territory's government made Alaskan cities unfriendly towards natives, it also prevented them from returning to their ancestral lands and hunting grounds in most cases. Unable to go home, and unable to exist freely within American society, Alaskan natives were placed in an incredibly difficult position. In 1941, the Japanese Empire launched a surprise bombing of Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and the United States entered World War II. Even though their government treated them incredibly poorly, thousands of native Alaskans rushed to the volunteer centers to sign up for the war and defend their country. Their patriotism was not rewarded. Under the guise of public safety, the federal government took further steps to denigrate the existence of the native peoples of Alaska. The military issued a prohibition against any kind of relations with native women. As a result, native soldiers were imprisoned for being seen speaking in public to their mothers and sisters. An even worse government decision was the forced relocation of almost 9,000 natives from their homes in the Aleutian Islands. Believing the islands could be a target for Japanese attacks, the U.S. Army preemptively destroyed the native villages on the islands raising areas that had been inhabited by the Alouette people for hundreds of years. They moved the natives they displaced to dilapidated canneries and other old, crumbling factories and facilities across southeast Alaska, effectively uprooting their entire lives. At the same time as these terrible events were occurring, the Alaska Territorial Guard was formed. If you want more in-depth info on them, check out the previous episode. The Territorial Guard was a force of volunteers who were charged with defending Alaska's coastline during the war, and was made up almost entirely of natives. They were instrumental in shooting down Japanese balloon bombs that traveled the jet stream across the Pacific, and guarded the Lend-Lease route with Russia from the Axis powers, allowing Russia to hang on during Hitler's Operation Barbarossa invasion. Meanwhile, Elizabeth had grown up, gotten married to a half-Tlingit, half-Serbian man named Roy Peretrovich, taking his last name, and had become extremely active in the burgeoning native rights movement. She saw that while these native men and women were actively and publicly supporting the war effort, they continued to be humiliated and discriminated against. Unwilling to stand by and watch this intolerance continue, Elizabeth spoke to her husband about moving to the capital of Juneau in order to petition the territorial legislature to enact laws giving natives equal rights. While her husband had recently been elected mayor of their village, he understood her vision, and the two, who had both recently turned 30, moved to the city hoping to inspire change. Upon arriving in the capital, Elizabeth immediately set about writing an anti-discrimination bill. She brought it before the territorial legislature, but the bill faced an almost total lack of support and failed to pass. She quickly realized that she needed a hook, a message that would resonate with the people of Alaska. 
When several of the Alaska Territorial Guard were denied a place to stay by the Douglas Inn, a hotel in Juneau, Elizabeth saw her opportunity. She decided to make the Guard a focal point of her next civil rights campaign, as they had become increasingly popular across the territory for their work shooting down Japanese balloon bombs, and war heroes are historically a popular group to rally behind. She wrote a letter to the new territorial governor, stating, The proprietor of Douglas Inn does not seem to realize that our native boys are just as willing as the white boys to lay down their lives to protect the freedom that he enjoys. We will still be here to guard our beloved country while hordes of uninterested whites will be fleeing south. The governor, a man named Ernest Gruning, I think that's how you say that, was a forward-thinking man and saw the logic in Elizabeth's words. He wrote back that he would stand with her and back her proposal. The two joined forces and reintroduced a slightly revised version of Elizabeth's anti-discrimination law, this time losing with an 8-8 tie in the House. Gruning was heartbroken with the loss, but Elizabeth was undeterred. In her eyes, the tie meant she was making progress. She redoubled her efforts in the campaign, organizing the movement while urging Native Alaskans to run for local congressional seats. She and her husband became obsessed, even leaving their children in an orphanage for one summer so they could fly around the territory to speak at events and rallies. They worked 80 to 90 hour weeks, coordinating protests, meeting with politicians, and writing speeches and essays. Their sacrifices proved effective and the culture began to shift in Alaska. By 1945, two natives had been elected to the territorial legislature, and the House had approved Elizabeth's bill. Furthermore, the first anti-discrimination law in America had become national news. Onlookers gathered by the hundred outside of the Congress's gallery in Juneau, hoping to catch a glimpse of history in the making. However, it was not as though the opposition had disappeared. Several long-time Alaskan territorial state senators stood against the bill, and they were extremely vocal about their disagreement. They published cartoons using racist caricatures to depict the natives, and used their influence with local police forces to intimidate protesters. The day of the final debate, Elizabeth Peretrovich's arrival to the Senate building was met with both applause from her supporters and slurs yelled at her by her detractors. She made her way to the back of the room and began to knit quietly while the legislators argued over her bill. Senator Frank Whaley, a member of the bill's opposition, stated he supported segregation because, and I quote, I don't want to sit next to an Eskimo in a theater because they smell. <sighs> Classy guy, that Frank Whaley. Senator Alan Shattuck expanded on Frank Whaley's enlightened comments asking, and this is another quote, Who are these people, barely out of savagery, who want to associate with us whites, with 5,000 years of recorded civilization behind us? When the floor was finally open to the public, Elizabeth walked up to the podium. Many among the crowd were unsure of what to think. Since the Alaskan legislature's inception, women had only been given the floor a handful of times. In a calm and authoritative voice, Elizabeth gave examples of the injustices she, her family, and other natives had faced because of their ethnicity, and ended her speech by stating, I would not have expected that I, who am barely out of savagery, would have to remind the gentlemen with 5,000 years of recorded civilization behind them of our Bill of Rights.
According to onlookers, the gallery broke out into wild applause. The bill was passed 11 votes for, 5 against. Named the 1945 Anti-Discrimination Act, it was a monumental achievement, abolishing the Jim Crow laws in the territory. It would be nearly two decades until the rest of America would adopt similar laws in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. In 1956, Elizabeth Paratrovich learned she had breast cancer. She would pass away two years later at age 47. She left behind a legacy of civil rights leadership and a framework for achieving equality for future generations. After her death, the state of Alaska declared February 16th, the day her bill was passed, Elizabeth Paratrovich Day. Of course, while Elizabeth's bill made great strides towards equality, she did not end racial inequality in Alaska in 1945. There's no way to completely stamp out racial bias in a region. After her death, many have attempted to frame her as the turning point of Alaskan discrimination, but that fight is not over. It's important not to frame history as a straight timeline, where past injustices were fixed by historical figures and are now irrelevant. Many of the same issues that plagued Elizabeth still plague Alaskan natives and other indigenous people all over the world today. Well, I don't know why I decided to end this episode on such a dour note, but uh, here we are. You can find more episodes at shakingamerica.com, or you can look me up on Spotify, or pretty much any other platform you use to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shaking America.